0: You're listening to Time in the Word. Paul effectively used a double approach to warn the Galatians about the dangers of Judaizing legalism. The first was personal and subjective, verses 12 through 20, and the second was objective and historical, verses 21 through 31. The characters and events of the Old Testament have often been used as illustrations of New Testament principles. For instance, the Passover lamb was a type of Christ in his sacrificial death. See 1 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 7. The essence of faith can be seen in Abel, Enoch, Noah, and others. See Hebrews chapter 11. A basic law of hermeneutics can be derived from 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 11. Now these things happened to them as examples, and they were written as a warning to us, on whom the end of the ages have come. In verses 21 through 31 of Galatians chapter 4, Paul planned to use an event out of the life of Abraham to illustrate the principle that a man could not inherit the blessings of the patriarchal covenant through obedience to the law. Let's listen as Dr. Gonzalez concludes his exposition of Galatians chapter 4, verses 12 through 31.
1: Galatians chapter 4, we're starting in verse 12. I beg you, brothers, become like me, for I also became like you. You have not wronged me. You know that previously I preached the gospel to you because of a physical illness. You did not despise or reject me, though my physical condition was a trial for you. On the contrary, you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. What happened to this sense of being blessed you had? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? They are enthusiastic about you, but not for any good. Instead, they want to isolate you so that you will be enthusiastic about them. Now, it is always good to be enthusiastic about good and not just when I am with you. My children, I am against suffering labor pains for you until Christ is formed in you. I would like to be with you right now and change my tone of voice because I don't know what to do about you. Tell me, those of you who want to be under the law, don't you hear the law? For It is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave and the other by a free woman. But the one by the slave was born according to the impulse of the flesh, while the one by the free woman was born as a result of a promise. These things are illustrations for the women represent two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai and bears children into slavery. This is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present. Jerusalem for she is in slavery with her children but the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother for it is written rejoice childless woman who does not give birth burst into song and shout you who are not in labor for the children of the desolate are many more numerous than those of the women who has a husband now you brothers like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as then the child born according to the flesh persecuted the one born according to the Spirit, so also now. But what does the Scripture say? Drive out the slave and her son, for the son of the slave will never be co-heir with the son of the free woman. Therefore, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. So this morning we spent some time looking at verses 12 through 18, we talked a little bit about the relationship of Paul, both previous to the present time, and then we talked about the strained relationship that Paul and the Galatians were having because of what the Judaizers were doing in influencing the, the Galatians to reject Paul's authority, reject the message of Paul, and embrace a gospel that was different from that, that the one that he had preached. But I also mentioned this morning that in this opening section, he talks about the future, the hope of the future relationship. And that's specifically found in verses 19 and 20. So we'll look at those two verses to close that first section. You notice that his affectionate address in verse 19, he says, my children, reflects a change of tone within the letter. First he's being quite stern and direct, and now this sort of changes the tone of the letter a little bit, and now he addresses them as his children. He says, my children. His earlier appeals manifested the the fact that he was a brother and an apostle to them, but now he comes as a loving, concerned father and he calls them my children they're still his children regardless of the present alienation spiritual birth when you think of it is is much like natural birth and make sure you listen to what I say so you don't misunderstand what I'm going to say now a man and a woman in natural birth come together and they bring into being a new life even so God and man Cooperate, not in the process of being saved, but in the process of bringing someone to the point of salvation. By that I simply mean think of the relationship think of what Paul is thinking about now when he addresses the Galatians as my children. Paul is their spiritual father. Paul was the vessel God used to bring the Galatians to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So in that sense, God and man are cooperating in the furtherance of the gospel to bring the elect into the body of, of Christ. So even so, God and man cooperate to beget a sinner into the family of God. A believer or a believing sinner is begotten both of God, and we know that from John chapter 1 and John chapter 3, but he's also begotten of another Christian, and we see a reference of that in Philippians. Paul was the vessel God used And here's sort of an application that is important for us to glean out of this. And there's so many applications we can't get to because time won't give us. But if Paul was God's chosen vessel to bring the gospel to the Galatians, if Paul was the one chosen by God to become the spiritual father of the Galatians, if we were to write a letter to individuals today who were believers, to whom would we address the letter is my children. To whom have we become spiritual fathers? Are we even doing the work that makes us spiritual fathers and some spiritual children of those fathers? What was the work Paul was Paul and Barnabas and others were engaged in? They were engaged in the work of evangelism. They were engaged in the great commission. They weren't sitting back waiting. They were going as the Bible instructs proclaiming the gospel and becoming spiritual fathers to those whom the gospel was being proclaimed to. So man and God cooperate to bring children into the kingdom. We must all be fathers to someone who are our spiritual children. And let me say this because oftentimes we become discouraged in the work of evangelism. I mean there's a, a boatload of reasons why we don't engage in evangelism much but one of the reasons is that we often don't seem to see the fruit we would hope to see At least in the short term, when we do evangelize. But the piece that we miss is that we are not always the ones God is going to use to bring about the conversion of a person at that moment but we are a critical link in the chain of things that happen in a person's life to eventually come to faith in Christ. So my concern is not with what kind of fruit will be born by the person I minister to. My concern is my obedience so that some fruit may be born in that person and someone else can come in behind me and continue that work until that person comes to faith. Who are our spiritual children? And I'm not just saying who are the ones that we disciple. That's one piece. But how many spiritual children do we have? And by that I simply mean how many people have come to faith in Christ either directly because of what we've done at the moment or because of what we've done throughout their lives to bring them to that place where they become children of the living God. Is it that we have no concern for the lost? Is it that we're that selfish that now that I'm saved, that's all I care about? So he says, my children, the Galatians were regenerated. They became born again under the evangelistic ministry of Paul. Paul experienced labor pains in those days of outreach when he appealed to the pagans to turn from the idols to the living God. And now Paul tells us here that he is again having birth pangs all over again because of their spiritual condition. He says, I am suffering, I am again suffering labor pains. He travailed at the first that Christ might be in them, now he travailed again that Christ might be formed within them. And you see the investment we ought to be making in the lives of people. It's not just about seeing that Christ might be in them, but it then becomes the task of making sure that Christ is formed within them. He says there in that verse, until Christ be formed in you. In real life, the mother of a prodigal child always agonizes the second time until the erring child returns home. Is that not the fact? That's his. Con- that's what Paul is saying here. I experienced labor pains when I first reached out to you and shared with you the gospel. Now I'm in labor pains again, desiring to see Christ formed in you. It was a full investment on his part. The Galatians needed to grow up. They needed to shape up. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verses 13 and 14, he says, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the understanding of God's Son, growing into a mature man with a stature measured by Christ's fullness, then we will no longer be little children tossed by waves and blown around by every wind of teaching by human cunning with cleverness and the techniques of defeat. That was his aim, that we get to that point, the point that he talks about in Ephesians chapter 4. Paul wanted to visit them as soon as possible. He says in verse 20, I would like to be with you right now. He hoped that his letter would stop the drift for legalism and their coldness towards Paul. He desired to talk to them with, different, with a different tone of voice than in the way which he had written. He says, change my tone of voice. Now he admitted that he was perplexed. Notice what he says, because I don't know what to do with about you. Imagine Paul saying that. I mean, your current state is such that I don't know what to do about you. He wondered about them. He wondered about the actual amount of influence that these Judaizers had exercised on them. How much heresy had they truly? accepted at this point? Were they willingly or unwillingly deceived? He could only know by their response to his letter and by a visit. Now we see in the remainder of this section that we're looking at, we see the conflict now between Isaac and Ishmael. And he uses this as an illustration or as an allegory to make a point. So we're going to spend a little bit of time looking at this final section of, uh, that we read here. The characters and events of the Old Testament are often used as illustrations in the New Testament. For instance, the Passover lamb was a type of Christ in his sacrificial death. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. The essence of faith can be seen in Abel, in Enoch, in Noah, and others according to Hebrews chapter 11. And we know that a basic law of hermeneutics or a basic law for interpreting the scriptures can be derived from 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 11 where it says this, Now these things happened to them as examples and they were written as a warning to us on whom the ends of the ages have come. So Paul is going to take an actual event in history and use it the way he says one sometimes ought to apply this principle of interpretation as an allegory and illustration to make an additional point than that which the event itself makes. In this section of Paul, plan to use, use this event out of the life of Abraham to illustrate the point that a man, and here's the point, could not inherit the blessings of the patriarchal covenant through obedience to the law which was again the issue that the Galatians were facing as a result of the influence of the Judaizers. So verse 21 he makes an appeal. Someone once said and you hear this often I've certainly heard, heard it oftentimes I don't know who who originated this statement but you often hear that those who are ignorant of history are bound to what? Repeat it. So Paul raised a question verse 21 don't you hear the law? If you're not listening to what the law says, you're going to do again that which you ought not to do, which the law is telling you. So he says, and and, I mean, just the words. Don't you hear the law? While the Judaizers constantly appealed to the moral, to the civil, and to the ceremonial regulations of Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, Paul pointed to the book of Genesis. And since all these books were written by Moses... They all constituted the law. To hear the law means to read it, to understand it, to believe it, and to obey it. The command is direct. Notice what he says in the very first section of of, of that verse. Tell me, don't you hear? Tell me. He wanted them to answer from the law his question, which was taken out of the law. If they heard the law. If they understood the law, they would not find themselves in their current predicament. Both the imperative and the question were addressed, look at that, uh, verse 21, to those of you who want to be under the law. Those of you who want to be under the law, do you not hear the law? The point is this, if you heard the law, you wouldn't want to be under the law. The verb You who want to be shows that the Galatians had not yet submitted to total bondage of legalism. They were not yet under the law, but they were willing to put themselves under the law. Their minds and wills had to be corrected immediately. There's another application there. When we see false teaching, when we hear false teaching in the church, and when we see that teaching influencing others, we must address the issue in a timely manner manner because if we wait too long, it may be too late. At this point, they were simply willing to be under the law. They were not yet placed under the law by their own uh, volition. He's trying to intervene so as to prevent them to go into full error and to pay the consequences of that error. And there's a difference between the phrases, and notice he uses these two phrases in, in that verse, there's a difference between the phrases under the law and hear the law. Under the law, in the Greek, does not have the article the. So it reads under law. You who want to be under law, but here the law does. What's the difference? What's what's the big deal with that? The difference. Under the law refers to the principle of legalism. So you who want to be under legalism, not under the law, but legalism, because that's what you're placing yourself under. Whereas here, the law specifically points to the law of Moses. See, so here's kind of the f- train of thought. If you hear the law, the law of Moses, you will not allow yourself to be placed under legalism. If you fail to hear the law, you will end up under legalism. And you will be- end up under bondage in slavery which is what the allegory is going to make the point about as, as, we, as we move forward. So let's kind of st- recap on the historical situation as we look at verses 20 and 23. Abraham, you recall, was 75 years old when God made the covenant with him, Genesis chapter 12. His wife was 65. She was 10 years younger than he was, Genesis chapter 17. Obviously, at this advanced age, he was promised by God that he would have many physical descendants, chapter Genesis chapter 13. When no child came after 10 years, Sarah encouraged Abraham to have a child by Hagar, her young Egyptian handmaid. Abraham consented to the advice. And Ishmael was born when the patriarch was 86 years old, Genesis chapter 16. Later, however, Sarah conceived and bore Isaac when Abraham was 100 years old, Genesis chapter 21. I always encourage people that when they read the scriptures, read them slow enough to get a sense of what every word you're reading means and what every, how every word contributes to, to the text itself. Sometimes we read these passages and we, we, we just gloss over them in a, in a way that we miss a lot of what is being said or, or understanding much of the theology of, of the authors of, of the scriptures. But notice where in verse 22, Paul clearly says, in other words, that the scriptures alone, and that was one of the battle cries of the Protestant Reformation, sola scriptura. In fact, that was the material cause of the Protestant Reformation. The scriptures alone must be the basis for theological argument. When we combat heresy, we combat it from the word of God. Thus, Paul began with an appeal to the infallibility of the word of God when he says, for what? It is written. When he fights the Judaizers, the heresy of the Judaizers, and the error of the Galatians, he points them to what? The word of God. That's what we should do. Always the word of God. Abraham, we know, actually had more than two sons. After the death of Sarah, we know that he married... Keturah, who gave him six more sons, Genesis chapter 25. However, only two sons are important to the illustration of the principle. Ishmael, according to verse 22, was born what? By a slave. Hagar was a young, fertile girl. She was a slave under the law of Sarah, who gave birth to Isaac, who was a free woman, the rightful wife of Abraham. Now, verse 23. Notice that it says, Paul says, Ishmael was born I quote, according to the impulse of the flesh. In other words, he was the result of human planning and effort. You see the problem. They took it upon themselves to bring about the fulfillment of God's word. How did that work out? How's it working out presently? Now, well intentioned, but how's it working out? Abraham believed that he would have children, but when no child was born to Sarah, he heeds to her advice and he has relations with Hagar in a sense in a sense Ishmael is born by faith and works right because he's not the child of promise and that's where the works come in and in ancient cultures a childless wife would often give her slave girl as a concubine to her husband we know that Rachel and Leah followed the same practice with Jacob Genesis 30 the custom was a natural law But that is just a point that Paul wanted to argue. A man cannot receive, here's what he's saying this far, a man cannot receive the divine promise by human method. Aren't we guilty of that often? Even the way we do ministry sometimes. We know what should be done. We know what might glorify the Lord. We know what might benefit the lost and the saints. But we don't wait for God to direct us on what, how, and why. And we start making decisions without waiting on the Lord. And we do it in many other areas of life, personal and corporate. We have to be careful to remind ourselves that a man cannot receive the divine promise by a human method. On the other hand, Isaac was conceived, note what he says, of a promise. It was humanly impossible for Abraham and Sarah to have a child. And both of them knew that according to Genesis chapter 18, when they tried to receive the promise through conspiracy and effort, they failed. The fruit of their conspiracy and effort, the world has been paying for ever since. They had to trust God alone. You see the lesson there? They had to trust God alone for the fulfillment of his pledge. Why? Because nothing is too hard for God. Thus, according to Genesis 21, 1, he came to Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what? What he had promised. He brought life out of the deadness of Sarah's womb. Now the allegory or the illustration. Now let me define allegory broad definition, a biblical allegory is a spiritual application of a literal historical event. And it's important to keep that last section of the definition in mind because an allegory differs from the liberal interpretation of certain things in that the liberals don't actually believe it's an illustration of a historical event, but of a myth a true allegory is related, linked to a true historical event. Therefore, we say that a biblical allegory is a spiritual illustration of a literal historical event. Paul clearly, firmly believed in the historical accuracy of the events of Genesis. He never referred to a myth. He referred to a true event in human history, but he's making an illustration using that historical event. Verses 24 and 25, Sarah and Hagar represented, according to the text, and I quote verse 24, the two covenants. Sarah became a symbol for the new covenant, which internalized the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant hagar became the covenant of law given to moses on verse 24 mount sinai in arabia so just as the birth of ishmael preceded that of isaac he was born first so the giving of the law came before the establishment of the new covenant in the blood of christ who was the promised seed notice verse 24 to be under the law or to be under law was to be in and i quote slavery the law and that's why he says don't you hear the law the law demonstrated that men were slaves to sin in fact that was the purpose of the law and that they consequently were under the curse of the law. We'll read to you just a few verses back, chapter 3, verse 10. Paul had just said this to them in the letter, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Why, Paul? Why are we under the curse? Everyone who does not continue doing everything written in the book of the law is cursed. Who are they? All of us. Ishmael therefore represented the attempt, listen, here's where the allegory is, is providing the spiritual illustration. Ishmael thus represented the attempt to receive the Abrahamic blessing by the works of the law, which Paul tells us in Galatians and in Romans that no man is justified by what? The works of the law. Just as Ishmael did not receive the inheritance, the inheritance went to the child of promise, to Isaac, so no person can be born again or regenerate by faith and obedience to the law. That's the point, at least in part, the allegory is trying to make. If you hear the law, you're going to have to come to the same conclusion that I have come to, and that is you're going to end up in slavery, in bondage, because that's the end result or the fruit of submitting to to that. So in in the first century, Hagar symbolized, as it says in verse 25, the present Jerusalem. Here's something that the Jewish people as a whole did, and one can understand why in part the Judaizers might have been doing this because perhaps not all the Judaizers had additional agendas for trying to influence the Galatian people. Maybe some were sincere, and they were just simply carrying their their Jewish baggage into, into Christianity, and maybe had just not successfully uh, separated the two. But the Jewish people, when you read the scriptures, you find that the Jewish people tried to gain the righteousness of God by their own effort, by the sacrificial system centered in Jerusalem, by circumcision. And by conformity to the Mosaic law. That's the way they gained favor with God. And Paul is saying, cursed, cursed, because no one keeps it to the degree that he must in order to please God. The emphasis is exactly what the Judaizers were trying to impose on the Galatians. Just as Jerusalem was in political bondage to Rome, certainly when Christ was there, so the Jewish people, as he says in verse 25, her children, present Jerusalem, her children, were in spiritual bondage. They could only be set free by faith in Christ alone. Verses 26 and 27, he talks about birth by faith in that promise that God had made in his covenant with Abraham. Now Sarah according to verse 26, corresponds to, listen, the Jerusalem above. Heavenly Jerusalem is defined by us, or is said to be, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22, the city of the living God. By faith, Abraham looked for this city, the city of the living God, the city, as it says in Hebrews eleven ten, that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. All genuine believers of all ages or citizens of this Jerusalem. This city, if you look at verse 26, is, four-letter word, free. I mean, there's so much that Paul is saying here, we just can't get to everything. But a person cannot be set free. And that's what she represents. A person cannot be set free through birth out of a system of legalistic bondage. It just can't happen. Thus, a sinner Could not be delivered out of the conformity of the laws of earthly Jerusalem, of the child who was not of promise. He must be born out of a free system as Isaac was begotten by Sarah. Just as God had to quicken the deadness of Sarah's womb, she could not bear a child. The fact that she did is a miracle. So God must also quicken those who are dead in their trespasses and sins. Every conversion is a miracle. Every conversion is a work of God as he uses humans to reach people with the truth of the gospel. If it were not by the grace of God, by the mercy of God, by the love of God, we would all today be lost in sin. We cannot fathom today what glory will be like. And glory will be such there will never be a time when we are not in awe of heaven and God. But on the other hand, neither can we fathom of what it is that we have been spared of. We can't even begin to imagine what hell is like. And just as God, by an act of his will and by a miracle, caused the dead womb of Sarah to bear a child, so it is when he brings us to faith in Christ. That's why Paul says, it is by grace you have been saved. Not of works. And observing the law is by definition a work we kind of see the application of this this allegory in verses 28 through 31 in Verse 28, we see uh, Paul described himself with the genuine Galatian converts when he says in verse 28, now we, brethren. And he then proceeded to equate himself in them with Isaac when he says, like Isaac. Now we, brethren, like Isaac. All of them were, in essence, what Paul is saying, children of promise. We are children of promise, aren't we? We are those who constitute the family that God had promised to Father Abraham, Isaac received the blessing of Abraham because he was begotten of the right mother in the right way. The Galatian believers and Paul and us also received the spiritual blessings of covenant because they and us were regenerated by faith alone in Christ. And he talks about the fact that just like the righteous are persecuted, verse 29, then the righteous will be persecuted it is impossible to be born of two mothers. The heir could not be born of Sarah and Hagar. That's true in the natural world, right? Even so, spiritual heirs cannot be begotten out of grace and out of works. It's impossible. You're either saved by grace or you're saved by works. And the whole argument Paul has been making up to this point is you will never be saved by works. You don't have two mothers. You have one. The Judaizers claimed that a person had to be saved by both faith and works in essence that concept is literally impossible is the point Paul is making is the point the allegory makes the illustration makes that view actually reduces salvation essentially by works alone because that is the determinant thing in my salvation therefore not faith but what i do paul knew that both the galatians and he had been born into the family of god we have been born into the family in the right way, he says in verse 31, we are not children of the slave, but of the free women. So, like Isaac, they would receive a full inheritance of their spiritual father. And so it is true of us.